Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Neustraten. A very good morning to everybody this Sabbath morning. And uh, some thoughts that I'd like to share with you. And I hope that the Lord will bless every single thing that we say. Can we just invite the presence of the Holy Spirit? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can worship the way we are. And Lord, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. That word spoken may speak to us, that we may understand, comprehend. And then, Lord, may it fortify our minds, our behavior, according to your will. For this blessing we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The church. Church, and I think I like this, is good medicine. It certainly is. And that's what I have some thoughts about that I want to share with you this morning. Church is good medicine. Good medicine indeed. The man here would know. Professor Marina Bruce, he is the, from the Vanderbilt University, and he made this statement which is very fascinating. Have a look at this. He said this. People who attend worship services may reduce their mortality risk by 55%. And obviously, uh, they took a very proper survey on this. Especially those between the ages of 40 to 65 years old. Interesting. 55% reduction. Why is, of course, the question that goes begging? Well, the reason that he gives is this. There is a social support. There is a uh, sense of um, compassion amongst the members towards each other and towards others outside their congregation. A personal holiness. A sense of belonging to a movement that seeks to live a holy life. And that would mean harmony with God. Each is known to contribute to reduce stress. And I would easily accept that. Feeling that you are doing good or having empathy towards others and uh, being part, and I think this is a very important one, being part of something that is greater than oneself. That's, I think, a very healthy aspect, that you look outside yourself. And that, he says, reduces the mortality rate by 55%. And there are the reasons. Amazing. Makes me think of a statement that uh, we are so familiar with. It comes from Acts of the Apostles, page 12. This is what she wrote. Unfeebled and defective, as it may appear, the church is one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme 
regard. It is the theater, I like this, it is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. Beautiful statement. And I can see when we get into that theater that has his supreme regard and uh, where he reveals his power by his, by his grace, yeah, I can believe, I can easily believe that that reduces the risk of not being well. Why do people then leaving the church? You know, it's, it's an interesting exercise when you, when you look at this. This professor here, George Barna, he is the founder of the, um, of the Barna Group, which is an organization that um, collates and collects statistics on the, um, what shall I say, the religious life in America. So yes, it, it, it is from an American survey, but we're not unlike the American, um, what shall I say, society. And he collated and collected some of the data here that I'd like to share with you. The first one that I'd like to mention is this one. America's postmodern culture, he said, is diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview. In fact, he says that barely seven out of ten would have a biblical worldview. Most of them consider truth to be relative and ethics to be relative as well. And that's an interesting statement that he made in that paper. The weekly church attendance. Well, have a look at this graph, and I hope it's, it's clear enough for you. Have a look at it, this. Since 1993 to to date, uh, it has dropped by some 35, 36%. The drop has increased. You can see a decline, can't you? Weekly church attendance from 1993 to 2020, it's declining. It declines in church attendance across the board, that is amongst the elders and the boomers. And I'm going to explain the elders and the boomers in a minute. And so now we look at a weekly church attendance by generation. And that's quite a fascinating study too. The generation, the elders, as I just mentioned, they are the ones that are born between 1946 and the, the boomers, the baby boomers, you would have heard of that, born between 1946 and 1964. And then you have the Generation X, we are born between 1965 and 1983, and those four are on the board. There's one more generation I'll mention, which are not recorded here, of course. The millennial ones are, they're born between 1984 and 1998. Generation Z does not feature on this little graph. They're born, I just mentioned that for interest, from 1999 and 2015. Now the top one, the top one are the elders. And then you go, and then you go down to Generation X, then you go to the boomers, and then you go to the elders. And it's fascinating that across the board, that caught my attention, the decline in weekly church attendance is a fact. That is the tragedy. 
Another interesting finding was that Bible reading in America, when they did their surveys, if you compare from 1993 to 2020, it seems to be relatively on par, only a slight drop, very slight. Prayer definitely is on the decline. This is what they found. In fact, in fact, over the last 10 years, uh, however, there has been a steady and slow decline. And, but still, a large majority of, of Americans, and I find that fascinating, still say that prayer is something that they do on a weekly basis. I, I think I find it fascinating. Most people, this is the reality, most people who skip out on church also skip out on their personal prayer as well. They go together. If a church is replaceable, and this is the reality, if a church is replaceable, well, then so is prayer, isn't it? The greatest, and I'm quoting here from a man that I admire a great deal, F.D. Meyer, the preacher in, in, in Great Britain. The greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer. You know what he said the greatest tragedy is? The greatest tragedy of life is an unoffered prayer. Can you see the difference? That is a tragedy. You don't ask, how do you expect God to give? So how should we live? Martin Luther made it uh, sound so easy to understand. He said this. And you know his circumstances, right, Martin Luther. A religion that gives nothing, a religion that gives nothing, that costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. And that is in a circumstance where there was, of course, persecution of anybody that was branded, of course, a heretic. And so many people died. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. I like that statement. It's very succinct. Here's another one that I like very much. I, I look for these statements. Billy Sunday was uh, in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, he was a baseball player. And he was a very popular athlete. And then he became a preacher. And uh, he, an itinerant preacher, and he was known for his down-to-earth, blunt statements, uh, particularly in the early 1900s, uh, the first two decades, he was very influential. He said this, going to church does not make you a Christian. Now note this, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. It doesn't. And that is a very good statement. That's a very good statement. I like it. So how shall we live? What can we draw from this? Quoting from the great controversy, and this is page 530, this statement caught my attention. I read it before, but you know how it is, you forget. But then look at this again. No man, she says, is safe for a day, notice, or an hour. 
No one is safe for a day or an hour without prayer. Without prayer. That's how necessarily prayer is. Divine grace must be received daily. This comes from our high calling, page 215. Or no one shall stay converted. Divine grace is something we need daily. And then she says, no man will stay converted. So that means we got to pray for grace every day and definitely more than once a day. The same booklet, uh, High Calling, early page. The heart must be purified, she said, from all moral defilement. In other words, there has to be that complete surrender. Church is good. And as we are planning as a people to go back to church, it's wonderful. But it isn't everything. There is a work to be done, isn't there? Because here are the essential truths. The difference between the casual follower and the committed follower of Christ. A casual disciple is really not a disciple at all. And so therefore a casual follower really is not a follower at all. And for that matter, a casual Christian is really not a Christian at all. There is no such reality that is palatable to anybody about being almost saved, because almost saved still means you're totally lost. And that's not where we want to be. When our primary citizen, you know, we're citizens of two worlds, aren't we? When our primary citizenship is in this world, in our perception, action, the way we live and think, then our eyes, minds and hearts are mostly focused, are mostly focused on worldly things. But when our primary citizenship is in heaven, then our eyes, minds and hearts are mostly focused on spiritual things. It's probably true to say that many men, a great man that had this, who had his mind on the new world to come, were very useful and very productive in the world they lived in. And I could think of quite a few of them because that was the driving force of, in their motivation, the way that they wanted to live. In fact, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 4. Set your mind, he says, on things above, not on things on earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life must be hidden in Christ, in God. When Christ who, who appears, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
That's the only way. Our life must be in Christ. That's what he says. Book of Matthew, church direction. There's a work to be done. There is an incredible commission. Just before he left, Jesus spoke and he said to them this. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So all authority, not just a partial, all authority in heaven, but also on earth. Go, therefore, there is the commission, the direction, make disciples, make disciples. It's not just about telling them the gospel. No, no, no. He says, make disciples. You know, we're going to talk about small groups in this church. And I'm glad that there was an expression of interest, but by quite a few. I think that's a great opportunity where we can teach people how to become disciples. And we'll start with having been taught ourselves. I, I recommend that you join that program, by the way. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Teaching them, there you have it. Teaching them to observe all things, not just some, all things. You cannot be a, become a disciple of Jesus if you can't be taught all things that he commanded. All things that I have commanded you, and lo, see here, I am with you, I love this, always, even to the end of the age. Isn't it wonderful? You're never alone. You may feel lonely, but you're never alone, ever, not with him. I think that's wonderful. And then we have a present-day truth as a denomination. As an end-time people, a present-day truth. God's church has that commission. I think of Amos, the third chapter, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God informs us. And I think that is a wonderful consideration that God grants us. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. There's a remnant church that must proclaim the three angels' message. And in the final conflict, they are those who keep the commandments of God, all of them. Remember, all that Jesus commanded us and have the testimony of Jesus. And we are that remnant, that end-time church. Back to the Gospel of Matthew. The life to live. The life to live. How should we live? Well, Jesus said it very nicely in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, you are the light. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. That makes sense. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. What is the point? Therefore, you put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. 
And then he says this, let your light, the light that you granted to give, pass on. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And notice, glorify your Father in heaven. I like that. Because what you show to the world is not how good you are. Forget that. What you show to the world is what God can do in you. That's the important part. And the glory goes to God. A.W. Tozer was a great evangelist, um, magazine writer. Yeah, very good. In the early, probably 1960s, around that time, he made this statement. And that's, I appreciate, 60 years ago. How much more true will this be today? Have a look at this. Religion today, he said, is not transforming people. Rather, it is being transformed by the people. Get that? Religion is being transformed by the people. It is not raising the moral level of our society. It is descending to society's own level and congratulating itself, congratulating itself that it has scored a victory because society is smilingly accepting its surrender. I like this statement because how true it is. The compromises that have been made. And then he qualifies it. He says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on. Notice, 95% of what we do would go on. And no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament, the early church, 95% of what they did would stop, would stop, and everybody would know the difference. 60 years down the track, I think it's even more true. That's what I believe. Yeah. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, comforted by God, by the Lord. I love the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to tell you why. He impresses me no end. Him, Ezra, who were contemporaries, the working together between them, fantastic, fantastic. Now, when you think of Nehemiah, you think of building the wall. Now, the wall is important. You have a city. And, and you have to control what comes in and what goes out. And the only way to do that is to have a wall. It's not just about protection from your enemies. It is really about what goes in and what goes out. And through the gates, you can control what comes in, what goes out. In fact, often a wall in the Hebrew mindset is compared to the law. Because the law controls what is not possible and what is possible. They worked. Boy, did they work. 
You know what is so good about the stories, and you should read it, the book of Nehemiah. There are families, groups of people working together. They work as a team. If ever you want to have a a perfect example of a church, study the book of Nehemiah. They all go to work. They all work together. Everybody knows that task. Everybody fulfills that task. And it's a very impressive account that you find in the book of Nehemiah. Wonderful. They prayed. Nehemiah did. They planned. And they built. You can only build Yes, if you pray, but you must also plan. You must plan as well. God has given you a brain, an ability to discern, so do that. And then you build. Pray, plan, and build. And then maybe the greatest achievement of Nehemiah with his people is actually recorded in a later chapter, chapter 9. Because the people confess their sins. They do this collectively, publicly. They collect, they, 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 they confess their sins. And you know, you can, you can date this occurrence. On the 24th day of these months, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting. And that would bring it to October the 19th, 444 BC. In sackcloth, that means mourning dust on their head. They're very serious about their mourning and, 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 and repentance. Then those of the Israelite leanings separated themselves from all foreigners they had been associating, particularly by way of marriage, which they were not supposed to do. And the, the painful exercise of separating themselves from all foreigners. And they stood there and they confessed their sins. They confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. They're not just remembering the iniquity of their fathers. No, no, they confess their sins. That is the important part. That was the trouble with Ezekiel when he attended to the Jews there uh, near the river Chabad there in in Babylon. Uh, They were blaming their forebearers for their exile. And the commission to, 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 to Ezekiel was, no, you tell them. They're here because of their sin. We have to acknowledge our shortcomings. We have to acknowledge our sins. That is where reformation, that is where revival can begin individually. So, how shall we then live? I love this one. We have nothing to, you know the statement, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Do you know that Nehemiah did do exactly just that? He took them, he told them, he told them about how God brought them out of Egypt, how he kept them, how he, how he protected them, how he cared for them, and he reminded them of the sinfulness of their forebearers. That is all true. But he particularly emphasized God's care and God's provisions. If only we do that. It's marvelous what God has done for us. I know life can be very tough and, and it can be difficult 
and we go through some very hurtful times and, and, and painful experiences. But here we are. He has kept us, hasn't he? Here we are. We, we worship him. We pray to him. We know him. And he's promised to be with us all the time. Wonderful. So Nehemiah, and boy, that was not easy what they did. I love this statement. And actually, that's the reading of the text we had this morning. When, he, when they tried to pull him away from his work, when they tried to divert his attention away, you want to read that. Four times they tried that. In fact, they tried it five, five times. The fifth time they said, oh, we're going to tell you know, the, the, the king in Persia all about you and what you're doing here. And, and accused them of rebellion, which was not justified. It wasn't true. Nehemiah could not be swayed. I like that. Threatenings didn't stop him. He could not be swayed. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while, uh, and leave it and I go down to you? He was not to be diverted of his work that he knew God had commissioned him. Prior coming to Judah, he prays for his people. Nehemiah is sent to Judah. That was a fulfillment of his prayer. Hostility and obstruction? Oh, so much. You want to read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah views at nighttime the wall of Jerusalem. He comes there and straight away he, he goes and he looks at things. The man, Nehemiah, is a man of action. He does things. He is not a pew warmer. He is a worker. He is one of those who works for the Lord. Nehemiah speaks to his people. You know, we got to do things together. That applies as much as that in the days of Nehemiah, it applies to us here today. Nehemiah speaks to his people. Um, oh, he's been ridiculed. Don't let ridicule ever stop you. It's nothing. Servant leadership. Here's another very important aspect of church, church life. And we do well to implement this. You know, the disciples, boy, that could be difficult. They must have hurt Jesus a lot at times, particularly when they did this. There was also a dispute amongst them. We find it in Luke 22, verse 24, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Can you imagine that? And then Jesus taught them about servant leadership. He says, he called them. He called them to, to himself and he said this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great, those who are great, exercise authority over them. And then he says this, Yet it shall not be so amongst you. It shall not be so amongst you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. I like that. Serving is greatness. Greatness is serving. Let him be your servant. I like that. Desire of Ages, page 550. Christ was establishing, she said, a kingdom on different principles as we find in the world. 
He called man not to authority. He called man to service. And that is true. What a truth that is. The strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. Such an important principle of a church. This church as well. Power, position, talent, education placed their possessor under the greater obligation. Whatever talents God has given you, you are responsible for to serve his fellows, to serve the church, to edify his church. And that's how it is. I like this one, and this is another reason I have to mention. Bear and share burdens. Galatians chapter 6. Have a look at this. Paul speaking. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that means if someone falls into sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one. That's interesting. He's writing to the congregation. When someone, a member of your congregation, is succumbed by whatever, you don't push them out of the door. You pray. You go to them, talk to them, pray with them, because you want to save that brother, that sister. That's true love, isn't it? This is what you find at church. If someone does something wrong, or you, if, if it happened to you, there's no point going to the world. The world couldn't care less. When you go off the path, the narrow path, it happens. We're all sinners. We don't like it pointing out always, but we are. Particularly not if someone specifically points out a sin that you, a shortcoming that you may have. If it's done in love, appreciate it. You go to your church family. A family should be like that and particularly a church family. The church is not just a gathering of believers. The church is also a hospital for sinners. I love that expression. If you want a cure, go to the church. Remember, that is the theater of his grace. That's what she said. That's how it should be. And so in a spirit of gentleness, oh, you you learn to speak right. It's not always easy, but you should. Considering yourself, you've got to consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one and another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Because really, Christian truth without Christian love is a contradiction in terms. Now, Church direction. Judge not. I love this statement that Jesus gave. Lest you be judged that you be judged yourself. For with what judgment you judge, he says, you will be judged. And then he goes on to say, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know, it's an interesting thing. If you see the sins that you might have suffered from, or still do, perpetrated by someone else, it always looks worse by someone else. So, you know, that's what the mirrors are for, aren't they? 
Yeah. And why do you look, this is what Jesus says, look at this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes? Okay, you've seen the shortfall. You've seen the shortfall. You've seen the speck in your brother's eye, sister's eye. But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Well, the difference between a little splinter, a speck, and a beam or a plank is enormous. Why is that? Why is that? Because hypocrisy is about the greatest sin you can commit. You wanting to take the speck out of your brother's eye is not because of loving, caring feelings you hold for your brother or your sister. It is the asserted self-righteousness to which you really do not have an entitlement. That's why Jesus called it a plank, big one, in your eyes. How can you see the speck in your brother's eyes? There's a couple of thoughts before we finish. I don't know who quoted this, but I came across it and I just liked it. I want to share it with you. The Middle Eastern mystic prayed this prayer. When I was young, all my prayer to God was, Lord, give me the energy to change the world. Wow. And at middle age, and realizing that my life was half gone, Without me changing a single soul, I changed my prayer to, to, Lord, give me the grace to change all those who come into contact with me. Uh, like, just my family, just my friends, and I'll be satisfied. I'll be satisfied. Now that I'm an old man and my days are numbered, I have begun to see how foolish I have been. How foolish I have been. My one prayer, my one prayer now is this. Lord, give me the grace to change myself. Now, let me translate it in Christian terms. Lord, give me the willingness to have your grace change me. Revival, reformation, begins with you, never outside you. If I had prayed that prayer right from the start, this mystic says, I would not have wasted my life. Good point, good point. A few more thoughts. We need to be aware of unworthy goals. I think that's important. People can be rich and famous, but still not be successful. It's true. One definition of failure, one definition of failure is simply this, succeeded at the wrong things. You can be very successful in the wrong things. God has given us gifts, not toys. Our body, our, our life, our health, they're gifts, not toys. We are to use these gifts to help to fulfill the Great Commission. There are so many people who are wasting, they are wasting their gifts, simply not getting so little in return, they're not using it the way they should. 
they toys to them. But they gifts intended for the well-being of others, particularly. By this all will know, Jesus said, that you are my disciples, that you have love for one and another. And when we allow, let's face it, God to love others, when we allow God to love others through us, clearly he perfects his love in us. That's what he does. Statement of John there in 1 John 4, brilliant. He who does not love doesn't know God. He's right. For God is love. I like that. So, back to church. The earliest church was in the Garden of Eden. They were directed out of the Garden of Eden after the fall. They were told to get out. No access to the tree of life. They must have missed that. I think they must have missed that opportunity of walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. And I wonder, I wonder, who missed who the most? Who missed that the most? It's just a thought. Church. What's missing? Well, you are. So let's hope we can get together again. And shall we do it responsibly? Shall we help each other? Be considered to one and another? Wouldn't it be nice that when we can fellowship again together? And this is the invitation. And we hope to realize this soon, of course. You know, church is a good medicine. Jesus, when he left, left the church behind. And you are the church. You are the light. You've been given gifts. And we are to work together. And he promised, didn't he? He promised he will be with us always. Even till the end. May God bless you. Let's just bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were able again to worship you in the manner we did. Contemplate your word, your will, your ways. Lord, I ask a blessing upon this church, your church at large. Lord, that we may be a blessing to humanity. And Lord, that Jesus may return soon. Be with each and every one of us. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. Kindred minds, these lie to the
Academy sang, Bless Be the Tie That Binds. Up next, Esther Mui will be singing Psalm 133, Dwell Together in Unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's blood. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that went down to the skirts of his God. For brethren to dwell together in unity Behold how good and how pleasant it is For brethren to dwell Breath. 
hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. America as a nation was sought after initially by those fleeing religious persecution in Europe. Yet upon arriving in the New World, many people slipped into religious lethargy as the pressures and opportunities of the New World enveloped their lives. In the 1700s and 1800s, two revivals would take place known as the Great Awakening. An integral individual in the first Great Awakening was George Whitfield. George Whitfield attended Oxford University and was a member of the Holy Club along with John and Charles Wesley that sought to lead practical and spiritual revival in their lives and communities. Upon graduating, he didn't settle in a church but became a popular outdoor itinerant preacher and traveled to America eight times during his life. He died here in America and is buried here in this church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. In the 1740s, it's likely that apart from the King of England, George Whitfield was the most well-known Englishman in America. His captivating sermons thrilled large audiences all up and down the eastern seaboard and led to a revival amongst all denominations, in particular the Baptists. He is the first preacher who preached to the enslaved in the South, and this Great Awakening was the first time that African Americans had embraced Christianity in large numbers. This first Great Awakening led to a multiplication of churches and greater respect and cooperation between all denominations. Some say that this period had an impact on the changes America was soon to undergo. Some scholars argued that the evangelical movement of the 1740s played a key role in the development of democratic thought, as well as the belief in the free press and that information should be shared unbiased and uncontrolled. The American War of Independence and the Declaration of Independence would happen a few decades later. The Second Great Awakening began around 1800 and continued until the 1830s. One name that is associated with this revival at this time in America is Charles Finney. He brought the camp meeting to town and established a revival formula that became copied in many other churches at the time. This included praying for people in public by name, allowing women to testify and pray in public to mixed audiences, appointing a pew at the front of the church as the anxious bench, having a room where you could meet and pray with people, and the meetings would be protracted over several weeks in town. In small chapels all across the East Coast, and as well as in large cities, the revival took place. It was especially strong in the northeasterly states in America, and it marked a significant shift where it moved beyond the educated elite to those less educated and less wealthy. A byproduct of this revival were the other reform movements that it encouraged, such as the temperance movement, the abolition of slavery, and women's rights. 
structures were being broken down and the gospel was spreading. God was using the ordained clergy and laymen alike to share the message and bring revival. This would pave the way for people to accept the messages that humble, often unlearned men and women would share in the years ahead. God has never been restricted academically, structurally, or by social class. He has used, and he will continue to use, humble servants to preach his message. Another revival will come to this world before the return of Jesus, a revival such as this world has never seen before. And God is looking for people, men and women, young and old, who will be willing to be used by him. episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hi, I'm Marilyn, the two-tip lady, who loves to share ideas that help make your life more simple. I've got a question for you. I bet you've never thought about this. You'll really have to think hard about this. Here's my question. What would it be like if mosquitoes sucked fat instead of blood? Hmm, what a thought. Well, if you've got a bit of a weight problem, you might wish you could be covered with mozzies. Wouldn't it be great if they could just suck that fat right out of you? It's probably true that the two-tip lady is a little bit simple, but just imagine this. If you were covered with mosquitoes and they sucked fat instead of blood, what would it do for you? Huh, it might make you lazy, might mean you wouldn't care two hoots what you ate, and you might just depend on the mozzies to do for you what you don't want to do. So we wouldn't be learning to take responsibility for our own actions if mosquitoes sucked fat. Well, why doesn't a mosquito do it? Have you got any idea? I asked my biochemistry major husband why he thought mozzie sucked blood and not fat. And this is his answer. Guess he's a bit simple like the two-tip lady. This was his simple answer. He said it wouldn't do their circulatory systems any good at all. I said, why? He said it would clog up their circulatory system. And I got to thinking, doesn't fat do the same to our circulatory systems? So there is a simple reason why we shouldn't eat too much fat. We hear all the time of people who've just come out of hospital or are just going in for a triple bypass. Why? Because their arteries are clogged with fat. Oh no! Some people seem to be quite proud of it. Proud of their super invasive surgery. Well, I don't think I want to be. Or I would be. I think we need to cut down on fat, don't you? So here's my first simple tip for today. Three words. Don't suck fat. Mozzies don't. They've got their heads really screwed on. So let's be at least as smart as a mozzie. And this is bringing me to my second tip today. Wait for it, it's coming. We all know that mozzies suck blood. Isn't it revolting work? 
but do we ever suck blood? Well, how could we do that? Do we ever suck the blood of our friends? Do we? I think sometimes when we go down the criticising road, we're just as horrible as the mosquitoes that suck blood. How about this quote from a favourite author? Here it is. We think with horror of the cannibal who feasts on the still warm and trembling flesh of his victim. But are the results of even this practice more terrible than the agony and ruin caused by misrepresenting motive, blackening reputation, dissecting character? Let's remember that we're told in Proverbs 18.21 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Turn your back on the habit of criticism. It's just as bad as sucking blood. Dad used to tell a story about his mum. She died before I was born, so I never heard her tell this story. But I'd love to imagine it. When a neighbour would come to visit and start to share gossip about another person, Grandma would say, Oh, just a minute. I'll put my hat and coat on and let's go down the road and pay her a visit. She'll tell us then if this is true. Of course, she never actually had to do that because the gossiper would beat a hasty retreat. So remember, what are the two simple tips today? Don't suck fat and don't criticise. If you actually take these tips to heart and take action, you'll be more healthy and definitely more happy and your life will become a blessing and much more simple, guaranteed. That's it from the Two Tip Lady today. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.